Thanks to Nick for leading us in our worship of God this morning. And could I ask you now to please take your Bibles and to turn to that portion that uh, Nick read to us a few minutes ago, Matthew chapter 25, uh, and keep that portion in verses 1 to 13 open as we come today to consider the parable of the ten virgins. Now, one of the recurring themes in movies on a regular basis is the theme of the end of the world. You can think about movies like The Matrix or Independence Day, 2012, Armageddon, The Day After Tomorrow, Oblivion, The Book of Eli, The Edge of Tomorrow, Greenland, or Tomorrow War, and I could just go on and on and on. In actual fact, according to IMDb, the Internet Movie Database, there are over 1,200 movies listed under the category of Apocalypse or post-apocalypse, which focus to one degree or another on some major catastrophe which is about to bring the world to an end or has occurred to kind of bring the world as we know it to an end. Now, usually the end of the world comes as a result of some kind of alien invasion or major cosmic catastrophe. But the common thread in, in many of these movies is that Although the earth as we know it and human civilization is on the brink of total destruction, nevertheless, usually some American hero with lots of guts and firepower is able to overcome at all odds the enemies in order to save the world from utter destruction. Most of these movies are great proponents of the human spirit and how we can stand together, we can put aside our differences of culture and race, and we can come together and we can overcome the enemy, no matter what that may be, to prevent the world from ending. Now, exciting as some of these movies may be, uh, they are all, to some degree, based on the biblical truth that the world, as we know it, is going to come to a sudden end. But in contrast to what the Bible says, there will be no earthly hero to save us from certain destruction because the Bible is clear that when the end comes, it will be the end. There will be no second chances. There will be no heroic fight for survival. There will be no option to reverse what the Bible calls the great and awesome day of the Lord. So that then is going to be our theme for the next two Sundays as we bring this whole series, this 28-part series in the parables of Jesus to a close. We're going to be considering what Jesus has to say about the end of the world, about the day of judgment, and how we are ought to be preparing ourselves for the apocalypse, which is nothing other than the second and final coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus actually had quite a lot to say about the end of the world and about the signs of the close of the age and about this second coming of his. And and much of what he said came right towards the end of his earthly ministry, particularly as it is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25. And Then we can read on into Matthew 26, 
that following on from what Jesus had to say about the end of the world, the people did not rally around Jesus fighting to get the movie rights for what he had told them. No, instead we read that the chief priests and the elders, they gathered together to plot the murder of Jesus. Now why is that? Well, as we will once again see this morning, the parables of Jesus divide. We've seen this from the very beginning of the series, that part of the purpose for which Jesus spoke in parables was to divide all people into two groups. We've seen that many times, the believer and the unbeliever, the true and the false, the the sheep and the goats, the, the wheat and the tares, the lost and the found, the fruitful and the barren, the forgiven and the unforgiving. We've seen in each of the parables that Jesus told, there is no place to hide. You are either one or you are the other. Now, these last two parables that we will consider from Matthew chapter 25 are no different. And that the reason why Jesus met with such hostile opposition following these two parables is because Jesus once again divides people into two groups. But this time, he does not divide between those inside the church and those outside the church but he actually comes to divide those who are all inside the professing church. He divides those who are within the so-called people of God into true followers of Christ and false followers of Christ. And this final division that Jesus points out in these two parables will determine where you will spend all of eternity. And so let's come then to consider the the parable of the ten virgins this morning in the context of Jesus having just spent the the whole of chapter 4 explaining the signs and the times of his second coming. And now he moves on to, to teach a parable about our responsibility to be ready for that coming. Now we... In order for us to to get our heads around this parable this morning, we need to know a little bit about the Jewish wedding culture of the day in order to grasp what Jesus is telling us. Now, in those days, there were usually three parts to a Jewish wedding. The first part was the engagement, which is slightly different to our engagement today. This was usually when the two fathers or the two families came together and arranged the joining together of the man and the woman in marriage. Then the second part of the process was what we call betrothal, which was a formal wedding ceremony in which the couple exchanged vows and after that were considered to be formally married although they did not yet live together and consummate the marriage. And it was during this time of betrothal that the husband would then need to establish himself in business in order to build a house and and earn a living in order to provide a place for him and his wife to to stay and, and be cared for. And then after that was in place, 
The third part of the wedding process was this great wedding feast and celebration where the groom and his groomsmen would arrive at the house of the bride and the bridesmaids would be waiting there with the bride and then there would be this celebratory wedding procession which would move from the bride's house to the wedding venue where the feast and the celebrations would begin and these would often continue for up to a week. And so it's really this third part of this final wedding celebration, the coming together of the the husband and the wife in the fullest sense, this great celebration of marriage that 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 we are concerned with in this specific parable of Jesus. And so the first lesson that that we learn from this parable is found in verses 1 to 4, namely that we must prepare for Christ's return. We must prepare for Christ's return. Let's read verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. Now, we firstly need to understand who the various characters in the parable represent. And so we we have these ten virgins, or the ten bridesmaids, and they represent the visible professing people of God. In the context of of Jesus' original hearers, this would have been the people of Israel. And and so for for us today, these ten virgins represent the professing church of Jesus Christ. Those who at face value are all looking forward for the arrival of the bridegroom who we know is Jesus Christ. We are told that there were ten virgins, a, a number which in the Jewish context would have referred to completeness. It's, it's all of them. And they took their lamps or torches and they went to meet the bridegroom as he came to be united to his bride. And so the picture here is, is one of the whole church, the entire body of professing believers coming together in anticipation to meet Jesus Christ. But all is not what it may seem. For we are told in verse 2 that half of them were foolish and the other half were wise. Now, why is that? Well, the foolish ones, we are told, took their lamps, but they took no oil, while the wise ones took both lamp as well as a flask of oil. Now, two things that we need to note here. Firstly, when the Bible speaks of a fool, it usually is not speaking of, of someone who lacks common sense, you know, the uh, a joker or the village idiot. No, no, when the Bible speaks of foolishness, it is most often referring to someone who God considers to be spiritually foolish, which at its root refers to someone who does not acknowledge God. Psalm 14 verse 1 says, the fool says in his heart, There is no God. Think back to the parable of the rich fool, where after storing up all his wealth for a a comfortable lifetime, in Luke 12 verse 20, God said to him, You fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? You'll recall when we looked at that parable or, or that account 
that although this man was, was hardworking and very successful by worldly standards, he had no thought for God in his planning and his actions. He lived as if there is no God. And so God calls him a fool. So we mustn't think here in terms of, of our modern uh, superficial use of the word fool, but we must realize that when Jesus calls five of these virgins foolish, he is referring to the spiritual state of their hearts. Secondly, we need to understand what the oil refers to. Five of the girls, the, the foolish ones, we are told, took no oil with them, but the wise ones, they took a flask of oil with them. What, what is that oil referring to? Well, often in Scripture, oil is used to refer to the Holy Spirit. The anointing with oil in the Old Testament, which is very prominent, is taken up in the New Testament, and we read that, that Jesus himself was anointed by God the Father with the Holy Spirit. Luke 4, verse 18, Acts 10, verse 38. And then we read again that believers are anointed with the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 21, Hebrews 1 9, John chapter 2 verse 20 and 27. And so in the, the context of the parable, the oil seems to be referring to this spirit of genuine eagerness and preparedness to meet Christ, to meet him at his return. That is the, the inner grace of God by his Holy Spirit in those who are spoken of as wise virgins. And so here too, we, we must not think of, of wise or wisdom in the sense of human maturity and knowledge and understanding found in a, in a person who, who understands the world around them, but rather wisdom is defined in Scripture as the person who fears the Lord. And so right from the outset, Jesus is doing something very unpopular, very uncomfortable in his day and unpopular and uncomfortable in our day. He's creating a division between religious people, making it very clear that within the group of those who call themselves Christians, those who call themselves the church, within the, the camp of Christianity, those who tick the, the Christian tick box on the census documents, they are foolish and they are wise. Those who in their hearts have not acknowledged Christ in a saving way and those who have. Or to use the language of Jesus, there are those who have been born again and those who have not. John chapter 3 verse 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is wanting us to see here is that the key differentiator between these two groups in this parable was a possession or a lack of possession of the oil. That is the only difference. Notice that both groups we, we see were eager to meet the bridegroom. And the foolish virgins, they, they even had lamps which seemed initially to burn the same as the other lamps for a while. But they lacked this most precious resource required to keep the lamp burning, namely the oil. And so John MacArthur says regarding this, uh, speaking of the wise bridesmaids, he says their outward profession 
was substantiated by their inward possession. Isn't that wonderful? Their outward profession was substantiated by their inward possession. And so how do we apply this first point of the parable to ourselves this morning? I think we've been challenged here to consider our preparedness to meet our Savior, Jesus Christ, when he returns. We are called to examine ourselves in the light of Scripture to see if we are truly spiritually wise. Are we in possession of the oil of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Or have we perhaps been deceived, yes, outwardly professing an anticipation for Christ's return, but inwardly we are spiritually empty? In other words, we are spiritually fools. So this is why Paul urges the church in Corinth, he urges us today to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Referring to the Holy Spirit. Unless indeed, he says, you fail to meet the test. You see that Paul makes the same division as Jesus. The Holy Spirit is either in you or he is not. And if he is in you, then you pass the test. And if he is not, then you fail. Paul also warns Timothy about the the days in which you and I are living in right now in 2021. He says in 2 Timothy 3 verse 1, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then he says this, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Did you see that? Professing to be Christians, but not possessing the Holy Spirit. Now the very scary reality of what Jesus says here is that within the professing church, within the group of people who call themselves Christians, who who may even call yourselves honey ridges today, there are a number who are seriously deceived, who may even have a a genuine outward desire to see Jesus Christ return, and yet you are without the spirit of salvation. There are religious people who are relying on their own merits, their own good works to be acceptable before Jesus one day, who have not truly prepared to meet their king when he returns, who are sadly spiritually lost, just as those who are lost outside of the kingdom, and yet these inside remain deceived as to their spiritual plight. And so we are called this morning to prepare to meet Christ. We must make sure, we must examine ourselves, we must test ourselves to make sure that we are genuine, 
We must make sure that we truly possess the Holy Spirit of God, that the oil of God's grace is in our lives. Otherwise we fail, otherwise we are not ready for his return. And so secondly, we we learn from this parable that we must wait for Christ's return. We must prepare for Christ's return and we must wait for Christ's return. Verse 5, look at verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Now, unlike other passages uh, in Scripture where we are, are warned not to be lazy, not to sleep or to slumber, This passage doesn't suggest anything wrong with the fact that they all fell asleep. Both the wise and the foolish, we are told, slept. After all, it's not unexpected that after a day of waiting so late into the night, they became tired and they fell asleep. And so I think what Jesus is telling us here is that we must wait for him. We must wait for his coming. It may well be delayed, but you and I must continue to wait. These virgins waited late into the night. They didn't say, oh, it's five o'clock, we're going to go home now. No, they waited and they waited and they waited until eventually they fell asleep. Jesus has just told us in the previous chapter, chapter 24, that, that no one knows the day or the hour of his return. He told us that when he does return, it will be sudden, it will be unexpected, it will be like a thief in the night. And, and so we must be ready. We must be doing the master's will when he returns. And so there is a kind of a normal, a normalness to this waiting that may even involve sleeping as we carry on with life waiting for Christ's return. And so while there's this imminent expectation of Christ that he could come at any moment, there is also this other dimension to what Jesus teaches, which is that his coming will be delayed. Possibly not soon. And yet equally possible any minute now. I think the best and the most accurate way to describe the the return of Jesus is the word imminent. Imminent. Any moment now. And the commentators all seem to agree that there is no negative connotation to to the bridesmaids falling asleep in this parable. It's, It's just an explanation of the normal way of life. They were waiting for the groom and fell asleep. Uh, as the day grew long as a result of his delay. The issue here is not their sleep. The issue here is that they are waiting for the bridegroom's arrival, and it took longer than anticipated. So we need to keep that in mind as we think about the return of Christ. We'll come back to that in a minute. But there's another point of application for us here. I think by nature we, we tend to be impatient we, we want everything instantly. We, we're not content to wait for, for long periods for something of, of value or importance. And so we can so easily get distracted. Think of a child in a car on a, a long trip to the seaside. And as soon as you get onto the highway towards Durban, the kids are already asking, are we there yet? How much longer before we get there? I just uh, love bumping into church families in the shops, especially during this, this time of lockdown when we so seldom get to see one another. And, and last week I, I really enjoyed bumping into Pam and the Gibbs boys in the mall. Uh, and Luke and Joel were so excited to tell me that, that they had just spent the long weekend in Durban. 
But then Joshua piped up. But when we got there, it was dark. And I knew exactly how he felt. I just loved that. After seven or eight hours of driving all the way down to the beach, they had to wait a whole extra night before they could get to see the sea. And that's exactly how it feels for us as, as we wait for Jesus to return, doesn't it? Perhaps after a, a lifetime of 70 or 80 years, you may feel, but it's still dark. We get tired of waiting for Jesus to return, and, and so we can easily fall into the temptation to think that if he hasn't come in 2,000 years, he's not likely to come at all. And this thinking is not new. It's called uniformitarianism. What a long word that is. Uniformitarianism. It's a, it's a belief that all things will, will just continue to carry on the same way that they've always carried on at the same pace as they have up to now. And so the thinking subtly creeps into our view of eternity and, and our view of Christ's coming. And so we stop believing if Jesus hasn't come for the last 2,000 years, uh, it's not likely that he is to come in the next 2,000. And so we stop believing and we stop expecting and we stop anticipating his return. But the Bible tells us his return is imminent. It's imminent. And Peter addresses this exact attitude in his own day, in 2 Peter chapter 3. So won't you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3 and follow with me as we read together what Peter has to say against this kind of uniformitarian thinking uh, that permeated his day and certainly our day today. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these God's word, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? 
So right here in verse 11 is the application to us this morning in this point. In the light of the Lord's second coming and the judgment of this world by fire, what sort of people ought you to be? What sort of person ought I to be as we live lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? In other words, as Christians, we should be living our lives in this world with a sense of patient expectation. Look at that tension there, patient expectation, going about our regular business of life on this planet with patience, but at the same time living our lives with an eye always to eternity, that at any moment we can be ushered into the presence of the judge of this world. In my preparation, I read something fascinating, which I'm sure some of you who are horse people uh, know about horses. A horse spends most of its time with its head down to the ground, grazing for its daily meal. But that makes it vulnerable to predators which may be lurking in the distance. And so God has created a horse with the most incredible eye. An eye with two separate focal points on the retina. The one focal point enables the horse to keep its eye focused on the green grass which it needs to eat. While at the same time, the other focal point is focusing on the horizon to see what dangers may be lurking. Isn't that a a wonderful illustration of what Jesus is teaching us in this parable? Jesus says, I I want you to live your lives with your physical eyes focused on the, the patient daily issues of this life in which you must live and move. But at the same time, to keep your spiritual eye focused on the future horizon of eternity and the imminent arrival of Jesus Christ. There is a a real possibility that Jesus may delay still longer. And so we must not put our lives on hold as certain Christians throughout history have done. And even some Christians at this time are doing kind of putting their lives on hold, waiting for Jesus' return. No, we must get on with the work that the master has given to us to do while we are here on earth. We're going to pick up on that next week. But there is equally just as real a possibility that Jesus might come in the next few minutes. Before this service is finished, Jesus may return, and so we must be prepared. We need to be prepared. We need to be ready in heart and soul to meet our maker and our judge. There's a a story of an old saint whose job it was to sweep the streets in front of his building. One day someone came to him and said, Sir, I've seen you faithfully sweeping this portion of the street every day for many years. What would you do differently today if you knew that Jesus was returning tomorrow? To which the old man replied, Nothing. I would carry on sweeping the street to the glory of God. See this double focal point of our lives? It must affect the way we live in this world. We need to be doing what God has given us to do every single day with the expectation that his return is imminent. 
He could arrive at any moment. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep the streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven will pause and say, Here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. And so you and I must prepare for Christ's return by making sure that firstly we have the the Spirit of God living within us. But then we must wait patiently for Christ's return with this double focal point in mind, patiently carrying on, faithfully doing the work that God has given to us here on earth to his glory while living in constant expectation and anticipation of his imminent return. And so finally then, in this parable, we must be ready to share in Christ's return. Verse 6 to 12. Now, up to this point, we've seen that both the wise and the foolish bridesmaids have been treated together. But the moment of division is about to to arrive. And so, read with me from verse 6. But at midnight, there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Now, at first glance, some of you parents may be inclined to kind of keep this parable away from your children because it doesn't seem to be very Christian, does it? How can Jesus call the five bridesmaids wise when they would not even share their oil with others? That's quite selfish and unkind. Well, here is a good lesson of how we should not interpret the scripture. For this parable has got nothing to do with being kind or sharing your toys or your sweets. It's got to do with being ready to meet Jesus Christ when he comes. And what this parable makes very clear, it's quite simple. The oil of the Holy Spirit cannot be shared. The oil of the Holy Spirit cannot be shared. It is a personal possession which cannot be transferred to another. The minute the bridegroom arrived, the foolish bridesmaids knew that they were not prepared. They lacked oil. and Without it, they could not proceed with the wedding procession. And so the stark reality that jumps out of this parable is that we cannot and will not be accepted by Jesus based on the spirituality of others, our parents, our spouses, our Sunday school or youth leader. When it comes to salvation, each person needs their own personal relationship with Jesus. Each person needs their own experience of salvation. Each person must personally be born again and receive the Holy Spirit. And so in order to share in Christ's wedding feast of eternal life, you must possess your own salvation. 
You must be born again. You, you must have the inward possession of that which you outwardly profess. But we also learn from this that in order to share in Christ's return, you must be ready when he comes. And this is made abundantly clear. There, there is no second chance for those who are not prepared. Can I say that again? There is no second chance for those who are not prepared. At that moment of the bridegroom's arrival, we see this, this eagerness and this willingness to do whatever it takes to get themselves ready. But guess what? It's all too late. While they were frantically trying to, to find oil for their lamps, the groom arrived, entered the marriage feast, and the doors were shut. And there is a, a somber tone of finality for those foolish virgins in verse 10. And Jesus makes it very clear that when it comes to his second coming, there are no second chances. Look at verse 11. Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. There is no greater division between human beings than what Jesus outlines for us in this parable. And I don't think we must put too much emphasis here on the ratios, but taking the parable as Jesus said it, half of those professing church of Jesus Christ will be locked out of heaven because they never really knew Jesus as Savior. They had a, a form of godliness, but there was no experience, personal possession of the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They professed his name publicly they even seemed eager and ready to be with him, but the substance of their salvation was empty. Half went in and experienced joy and, and celebration of this eternal wedding feast of the Lamb, and the others were shut out because they didn't know God. Or more accurately, because Jesus says he never knew them. Verse 12 reminds us of that very sobering passage from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Doesn't this scare you? Doesn't this worry you this morning? That large numbers of professing Christians who seem to have devoted much of their lives to do many things for God, will find on that day that they are shut out of heaven because they were not prepared to meet the Lord. So where does this leave you and me as we conclude here in verse 13? Are you ready to meet Jesus Christ? If, if Jesus came before the end of this service, would you be ready? In five minutes time, would you be ready? 
Is the flask of your heart filled with his Holy Spirit? Is your outward profession of faith in Jesus substantiated by your inward possession of the Holy Spirit? Are you ready to share in Jesus Christ's return? How does Jesus end this parable? Look at verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Are you watching? Are you waiting for the Savior's return? And and we need to recognize our own sinful tendencies here. I mean, let me illustrate this. Think about what happens when, when you invite a family or friends over for a meal on Saturday at 5 p.m. When do you get your house in order? Well, if it's anything like our house, five minutes before they arrive. I mean, yes, you've perhaps got the meal in the oven sometime before. You've already put the fire on, sure. But five minutes before the people arrive, you are giving orders to the kids to take the ironing off the dining room table, to pick up their clothes off the floor, to, to get the bathroom in a respectable state for the arrival of the guests. So knowing exactly when to expect the guest usually means that We leave the the things that need to be prepared for the guest to the very last minute. Isn't that true? But what if a friend of yours says to you, listen, I'm, I'm coming through Joburg next week sometime, and I'd love to stay over at your house. Will you have a bed for me? Well, that's not so convenient, is it? You don't know when exactly he's going to be coming, and so what do you have to do? You have to get everything ready in advance. You you need to make sure that if he arrives at any moment, the house is ready, the bathroom is neat, the bedroom is prepared, and there is enough food to eat. Well, so it is with the second coming of Jesus Christ. He has told us, I am coming soon, but not exactly when. It could be today, but maybe not and, and so we don't have the option to procrastinate until five minutes prior to his return. No, we, we can't do that when it comes to our salvation. We can't think that we're suddenly going to just whip it all together in the last minute. No, you and I, we need to be prepared now. We need to be prepared every day. Our spiritual house needs to be in order today. Sure, we we do need to carry on living in the meantime. And he has given us lots to do for his kingdom while he delays. But we should always be ready, always on the lookout, always watching and and waiting that, that any minute now Jesus may arrive. And when he comes, we will be prepared and know for sure that we are ready and eager to meet him in the air and to be ushered into his presence forever. And so Jesus says, watch therefore, I'm coming, I'm coming soon. You know neither the day nor the hour, but watch. And this is a command from the Lord to us this morning. It's, it's not an option for you to go and ponder on. The way you will spend eternity depends on your preparedness to meet Jesus Christ. So as I close this morning, are you Are you ready? Are you ready? And if you are ready, then can I ask you another question? What are you doing in the meantime to help get others ready? 
And if you are not ready this morning, what are you going to do about it today? Let's pray together. Our gracious Lord, we want to come to you at a time in our world history when there is so much talk about the end time, so much talk about the last days, so much talk about the, the signs of the times. And people are getting so caught up with, with prophecies and, and, and predictions and, and visions and conspiracy theories and missing the point of what you are crying out to us from the pages of Scripture. Are you ready? Are you ready for Jesus to come today? And so we pray, Lord God, that as we have considered this parable today, we would grasp something of the urgency of you telling this parable about the ten virgins. That on that day when you come, if we are not ready, we will be shut out and there is no second chance. And your purpose here is not to, to judge and be harsh. For as we read in Peter, your delay in coming is because of your patience that you desire that all should come to repentance. But there is coming a day when your patience will be complete and you will return. And on that day, it will be too late. And so we want to thank you for your grace to us in this parable. Your grace to us, calling us right now to be born again. To be born again of the Holy Spirit of God as we profess our faith in Jesus Christ. As we cry out to you and you alone for forgiveness. That we would receive your gift of salvation, your deposit, your guarantee of the Holy Spirit. And we would be ushered into your presence with joy and thanksgiving for all eternity when you return. So I pray, Lord, today that every single person here at Honey Ridge, every person watching this video on YouTube, wherever they may be in the world today, would not leave this time before you today without making sure that they are right with you that they have put their trust in you and you alone for their salvation. Oh, Lord God, we are asking you to do here something which we know you delight to do, which is to grant eternal life to those who come to you. And so we plead with you that your Holy Spirit would be stirring and working in our hearts that which only you can do, that which only you can begin, and that which only you can complete. And Lord, for those of us today who are truly Christians, who know that you are our Lord and Savior, we are living every day with that expectation of your return. Oh Lord God, forgive us for keeping quiet about this, for holding this to ourselves, for doing so little. Lord, at this time we see so many people telling other people to have the vaccination, telling other people not to have the vaccination. But when last have we told someone about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and what they can do right now, not to get through a pandemic, but to gain eternal life for all eternity? Oh Lord, challenge us in our hypocrisy. Challenge us, we pray, in our earthly mindedness. Cause us to lift our eyes to the horizon of eternity and to look with eager and expectant hearts for your return. But in the meantime, Lord, help us to be busy, busy for you, 
as we seek to make you known and as we seek to draw and proclaim Jesus Christ to those who are lost and dying, that we would draw them into the church, that they too would be ready and prepared for your return. So we thank you for this joy that you've given us to participate with you in this work of preparing ourselves and others for eternity. And we pray that we would take it seriously. We pray this in Jesus' name for your glory and for your kingdom. Amen.